Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back as we palpate the pulse of science and relax and let the rest of that turkey get digested. I'm Patrick Ruby. On this edition we'll feature John August in of Cancer and a humorous look at Santa's health. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. <laughs> Kangaroo cream could prevent skin cancer. Dr Linda Fekatova and Dr Uta Wheely from the ARC Centre of Excellence for Free Radical Chemistry and Biotechnology at the University of Melbourne, along with scientists from the University of Innsbruck, Austria, are investigating an enzyme used by kangaroo skin to repair DNA. The hope is that when they understand how the enzymes work, they'll be able to develop a cream that you'll be able to use to repair the damage done by the sun after the sun has damaged your skin. The research will be published in the upcoming edition of Chemical Communications. At present, once your skin has been damaged, there's nothing you can do, so keep using the sunscreen. Now, it's a common belief that testosterone causes aggression in humans, but a new study challenges that belief and smacks it in the face. Instead, the evidence seems to show that the hormone encourages status-seeking behaviour, which is different to aggression in humans. The study involved 120 women, and the idea was to test the folk wisdom that testosterone makes you aggressive. What they found was that the folk wisdom is so pervasive and so strong that if you merely tell people that you've given them testosterone when in fact you're lying, they will start behaving more aggressively. Testosterone is a steroid hormone secreted by the male testes and to a lesser extent by the female ovaries, and it affects brain development and sexual behaviour. Now, previously, researchers had found that testosterone led to a substantial increase in aggressive behaviour in rodents. And what's happened is that folk wisdom has generalised and adapted these findings to humans, going, well, makes the rats aggressive, so it must make people aggressive. In fact, not just aggressive, but antisocial, egotistic, and just generally male. So this wisdom has reached the courtrooms in the US because steroid-induced rage, roid rage, has been used as a legitimate legal defence in the US. Researchers at the University of Zurich and the University of London have managed to show that it doesn't have the same effect in humans that it does in rats. The 120 women, some of whom were given testosterone and some a placebo, took part in an experiment in which they had to bargain to receive money. Now, the common opinion would have held that subjects who received testosterone would have adopted aggressive, egocentric and risky strategies, the male strategies, regardless of the consequences. In fact, the test subjects with an artificially enhanced testosterone level generally made better, fairer offers than those who received placebos, thus reducing the risk of a rejection of their offer to a minimum. This suggested that subjects who received testosterone placed a higher value on social status, than those who had taken the placebo, with a hormone increase in the sensitivity for status. Therefore, they've completely refuted 
the idea that testosterone causes aggressive or egoistic behaviour in humans. For animals with simple social systems, an increased awareness for status might express itself in aggressiveness, the researchers say. The study also shows that the popular wisdom that testosterone causes aggression is deeply entrenched. It's not only testosterone itself that induces aggressiveness, but rather the myth surrounding the hormone, says economist Dr Michael Naif. In a society where qualities and manners of behaviour are increasingly traced to biological causes and therefore partly legitimated, this should make us sit up and take notice. And finally, the Methuselah Foundation has been set up to encourage research into medicine that extends human life. They've got their top five picks for 2009. Dave Goebel has picked his favourite bits of research. Number one, rapamycin. For the first time, a drug has been shown to extend the healthy life of mice. Late-onset rejuvenation holds great promise for humans. This was so significant that the Methuselah Foundation awarded Dave Sharp the M Prize Lifespan Achievement Award. The second is vitamin D3, called calciferol. It's proving to have a powerful preservative and anti-cancer function. There's a clear indication that the recommended daily allowance is too small. Dave is taking more vitamin D and suggests that anyone can take advantage right now. So it's a little controversial. Dave thinks the farther north one lives and stays inside, for example, winter in New York, the more they must pay attention to the vitamin D. So if you're in a cold climate, think D. The Organovo is 3D tissue printing. Basically, this means you print up spare organs on an inkjet-like device. We're not talking about printing up plastic. We're not talking about printing up ink. We're talking about printing up tissues. This is Dr. Gabor Forgax of the University of Missouri. Basically, this sort of work could eliminate the need for donor transplants in the future by letting you print up organs to fit. Number four, Dr. Anthony Atala of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine. They're also looking at organ replacement. They're growing bladders in their laboratory. And the fifth and final is the continuous flow ventricular assist device. These tiny three-ounce devices can be surgically attached alongside the heart. For patients waiting for a heart transplant, these can be life-saving. They quietly and effectively take over the pumping ability of the heart. In the future, they may eliminate the need for some transplants altogether. You can check out more of this information on methuselahfoundation.org. Thank you, Ian, for bringing us all that lovely news and for breaking the myth on testosterone. It's good for us to actually uh, hear as blokes that the testosterone is not what's causing the aggression. Anyway, next up, we have John August with his feature on cancer. A few years ago, I became aware of one group promoting alternative treatments. Rather than just dismiss them, I thought I'd try to understand their position. I'm obliged to speak about them in generalities, as I can't mention their name. In any case, I do expect their views to be generally representative. They didn't focus on magnetic fields or other ideas, and were not obviously spouting nonsense. They seemed genuine, showing the bruises of being ignored and perhaps actively sidelined by mainstream medicine. Understandable. But 
Even as I'm sympathetic about their integrity, they were one-sided. Their insights were overwhelmed by misunderstandings, distortions, and unwarranted expectations of conventional treatment, which I'll get to. I'll look, also look at criticisms of cancer therapy from the mainstream. Perhaps surprisingly, mainstream doctors support alternative therapies like meditation as complementary. They agree it helps in coping with the cancer, but doubt it improves survival. While alternative treatments are unproven, perhaps this is partly because alternative practitioners don't conduct formal tests and make systematic analyses of survival. Further, Dr. Andrew Penman of the New South Wales Cancer Council says mainstream practitioners cannot develop a career around complementary therapies. So perhaps there's a lack of engagement on both sides. However, Dr. Alistair Cunningham of the Princess Margaret Hospital in Toronto, Canada, is a notable exception. I'll review his work later. There's a claim that mainstream medicine is blinkered, seeped in jargon and beholden to money. I believe academic research is conducted objectively in accord with a scientific method. The jargon they use facilitates effective communication between professionals, though, certainly, it can also serve to emotionally delineate and bind an elite group. Certainly, mainstream medicine pays attention to what's on the radar. We know about bacteria and stomach ulcers. This was rejected by the mainstream for quite some time. However, researchers do look for novel things they can prove to be effective. A discovery gets you somewhere. Wikipedia makes the point that some quite left-field ideas have been incorporated into cancer treatment. While money has an influence on health, there's also a lot of competition within mainstream health. If a novel approach could be scientifically demonstrated, people could make money from it as a profitable niche, much as other people might have vested interests in the status quo. Big money may reinforce the status quo, but small money will look for niches of difference and opportunity. Yes, money does have an influence, but I don't think it's as sweeping as and overwhelming as some people make out. There's a claim that cancer is a systemic disease of the immune system. Mainstream medicine talks about risk factors which influence cancer's prevalence. Some such factors involve exposure to carcinogens and perhaps our ability to remove them. Lifestyle changes can reduce risk and perhaps compensate for our genetic predispositions. Dr. Penman says diet and exercise can reduce the initiation and or development of cancers by perhaps as much as 10%. But this is not a deterministic cure, rather one factor influencing a cancer's progression. This contrasts with the claim that dietary and lifestyle changes can cure cancer. There's an emphasis on attitude and therapies which restore natural healing, and the claim that the major cause of cancer is internal rather than external. But there have been correlations between increases in smoking, total cancers and lung cancers, suggesting an environmental influence. A nurse I know who used to work in cancer or oncology saw a strong link between a patient's engagement with their underlying psychological issues and cancer. An anecdote, yes. But other medical workers note similar connections. In Canada, Dr Cunningham runs the healing journey at the Princess Margaret Hospital. Researchers there have found evidence that psychological therapy can improve survival. He can point to many studies and assessments by doctors suggesting attitude can influence cancers. However, it does seem to be a rare phenomenon which does not show up in standard analyses. It's like looking at how well a group of people punch at the same time as you apply a chancy training technique. You won't see any effects if it only happens to a few people, particularly if their ability was variable to start with. If, however, you look at the ability of people to punch above their weight, you'll be more able to see such chancy effects. This is what Dr Cunningham's group did. They focused on individual patients' ability to survive longer than you'd otherwise expect. 
Patients were initially assessed for their expected survival, other things equal. They were then assessed for their ability to develop an authentic personality and their engagement with therapy, and they found a correlation between engagement and increased survival. However, the aggressiveness of the cancer was another variable. Some cancers were amenable to improvement, but others were just too aggressive, and unfortunately it didn't matter what you did. Why do we have this improvement? Cancers are known to have spurts of growth, which implies a change in the body. It's difficult to believe existing cancer cells suddenly change how they operate. A sudden shower of secondary tumours can appear many years after the primary tumour has been removed. We see covert small cancers in a large proportion of breast and prostate tissues at autopsy, and the persistence of tiny amounts of marker molecules in people with lymphatic cancers where irradiation followed by replacement with new lymphoid tissue should have removed the original cancer cells. The growth of blood vessels into a cancer can depend on the environment and can be prompted by healing after a wound. It's suspected healing after a breast cancer is removed makes blood vessels grow into other, until then, benign tumours. This prompts preventative chemotherapy after the operation. Hormones are also important. While overweight women have worse breast cancer, it's related to the hormone oestrogen. Exposure to light at night influences cancer, with some suggested links to breast cancer through this hormone, amongst other possible mechanisms. So perhaps stress lowers the body's immune system and changes the hormone distribution. Stress causes ill health. Perhaps an unauthentic personality means low-grade continuous stress, with an authentic personality having less stress, meaning the body needs less repair and growth, and the cancer has less opportunity to piggyback on this activity. This is of course quite speculative, but it's certainly suggestive. Further, the ability of mental attitude to affect diseases, particularly including the placebo effect, is generally acknowledged. So where does this leave alternative therapy? Dr Cunningham's work com complements conventional therapy, something many alternative advocates are antagonistic about. Further, their ideas about the influence of the immune system on cancer can be problematic. Even if the immune system influenced cancer, it would be a rare occurrence. In contrast, this is seen as an underlying factor, without any acknowledgement of facts around the immune system and cancers, nor the possibility that such turnarounds could be inherently rare, no matter what you might do to encourage them. I can just see people queuing up to quote me out of context, but nevertheless I'll try to say it with care. While such views are problematic and may have helped to reduce survival and quality of life, it is also possible their views may have helped to improve survival in some cases. It's possible to parade patients with dramatic turnarounds. The problem is assessing whether this was random, or really was a result of something the patient did. Turnarounds do occur in the normal course of events, exotic treatments or no. We don't know how many patients might have tried a particular approach with no effect. This is why so-called forward-looking statistical analyses, where you start with all patients at the beginning of treatment and look at both success and failure, are considered more valid. There's a claim that conventional treatments do not make the patient as good as new. This is unfair. The objective is improvement, not perfect renewal. There's a criticism that mortality improvements are marginal to some treatments. But much treatment aims to improve the quality of life, not survival. Women surviving breast cancer have long-term mortality twice that of healthy women of comparable age. But they're different to healthy women in genetic predispositions and lifestyle, so you're in fact comparing apples and oranges. If a cancer recurs after 10 years, is this a new cancer or the old one? One claim is that the new cancer is the result of the underlying disease, while mainstream medicine considers it to be a new random mutation, perhaps more likely because of the risk factors which prompted the original cancer. 
In any case, continuing risk factors seems as good an explanation as a continuing systemic illness. Changing to criticisms from within mainstream medicine, one is that early detection increases the survival, not because of better treatment, but rather because the time between diagnosis and mortality has increased. However, New South Wales statistics, which should be broadly representative, suggest an overall improvement. Cancer incidence is increasing at the same time as mortality is in decline. Something else is at work. It's problematic to look at aggregate figures over all cancers. The mortality rates of some cancers are in decline, at one stage, stomach and testicular cancers, for example. And it's quite a thicket to separate whether the changes result from lifestyle or treatment changes. Perhaps improvements in diet over the last few decades have improved mortality for younger people. And smoking has had a very significant effect. In fact, Dr. Robin Holliday, a specialist in epigenetics, tells me the efforts made by Richard Doll and Bradford Hill in demonstrating the link between cancer and smoking were a definite landmark in science and the persistence of individuals in developing ideas and carrying them forward. It's possible to check for this early diagnosis artifact by considering how developed the cancer is at diagnosis. This was reviewed for colorectal cancer by Bell and other researchers. They saw no shift resulting from earlier cancer detection. Further, some cancers show improvement over several decades, and it is difficult to believe screening effectiveness would be incrementally improving over so many years. So the overall picture suggests improving cancer treatment, but certainly it's a mixed bag. Progress is being made in some areas and not in others. It's unfair to say that all treatments are ineffective. Some are ineffective. But the failings do not mean the successes mean nothing. Certainly, some types of cancer have a high mortality, and are effectively untreatable. That is disappointing and unfortunate, but it does not mean the promise of cancer treatment has been betrayed, as critics would assert. Mainstream therapy has its things to criticise, but also its things to celebrate. Thank you, John. Now that the madness of Christmas is behind us, the turkey, the pudding, the hangover, the bunch of screaming kids dragged along by the procreative part of your family, the tree, the presents, the crazy last-minute shopping, the thinly-veiled disappointment at getting yet another crappy present, usually a pair of socks, from some distant and rather obscure relative you see once a year, thankfully. <sighs> Just kidding. Now that all the fun and the games are over, why don't we take a look at a humorous, sciencey take at one of Christmas' biggest icons, Santa. The British medical journal published a tongue-in-cheek article on some of the problems with having Santa as a role model for our health. The article was written by Nathan Grills and Brendan Halliday. Here are four facts that we should consider. Fact 1. Santa is obese. There is an association between countries that venerate Santa Claus and childhood obesity. And while there is no proven link of causality yet, there is a temporal pathway whereby Santa promotes a message that obesity is synonymous with cheerfulness and joviality, according to Grills and Halliday. The article suggests that we should create a supportive environment for Santa's dieting, including ceasing the tradition of leaving Santa cookies, mince pies, milk or brandy. This is not just going to improve Santa's health, it will also improve Dad's health, as Dad often feels obliged to help Santa out by finishing off any leftovers Santa didn't get around to eating. What do you think about this advice, Ian? Do you reckon 
it's better for us to have a happier, slimmer, trimmer Santa? Well, there's two ways to look at this. I mean, one is that this is an actual role model for fat people, and it's a positive portrayal of fat people in the media, and you could be taking that away from them. I suppose that's true. Didn't really think about it. Thinking about it from the health perspective, um, I suppose the aim of of the people that wrote this article is just to just to try and help avoid any health problems. Would you think people are really trying to be like Santa? Like they only can be jolly if they're fat, or are they trying to just benefit from Santa's jolliness? One of the other suggestions is that Santa should share the carrots that are left out for Rudolph and the rest of the reindeer instead of having the mince pies and the milk and the brandy. Carrot pies? Carrot pies, perhaps. And that Santa should also give up the sleigh and use a push bike or do some jogging or walking to deliver the presents instead. He'd never do it in time. I know. Maybe he could have a sleigh to get around from country to country, but when he's actually got to each individual street he gets off and walks. I wonder if that would work. (laughs) Or maybe he should be pulling the sleigh and the reindeer should be just resting inside. (laughs) Fact number two. Santa is a drink driver. If every house left out a glass of sherry or brandy for Santa, he would be over the legal alcohol limit very quickly. One concerned mother, according to the article written by Grills and Halliday, One concerned mother didn't want to leave any alcohol out for Santa because she was concerned it would encourage drink driving in her children, but was later reassured by someone else not to worry because technically Rudolph and the other reindeer are the ones pulling the sleigh, and Santa doesn't have much to do with it. However, Santa also indulges in other dangerous activities, such as roof surfing and chimney jumping, and is never seen to wear a seatbelt when driving his sleigh. So it could be a poor role model. I think a seatbelt is necessary. You think so? You think we should have Christmas cards with Santa wearing a seatbelt in his sleigh? I think if we're happy enough to update Santa with sunglasses, as is a common (laughs) thing in pictures now of Santa Claus, and other modern things, why not? Are the sunglasses to protect his eyes from the sun, or are they just meant to make Santa look a bit more cool? I suppose that's the question. Either way, as a role model. (laughs) (laughs) It would be good to see some seatbelts creeping Click, clack, front and back. Okay, fact number three. Santa advertises unhealthy practices. Okay, now Santa as an icon is exported to several countries around the world and advertises many products. The Santa we know today was largely invented by Coca-Cola in the 1930s and is still used to advertise Coke. Santa used to be used to advertise cigarettes as well, but this has subsequently been banned from use. But according to the article by Grills and Halliday, the image of the jolly pipe-smoking bringer of good tidings is still firmly entrenched in our imagination. Santa can still be found on some Christmas cards smoking cigars. And Grill argues you can just imagine a cheeky 12-year-old arguing, Oh, Mum, how can smoking be bad? Santa smokes and he must be at least 99 and hasn't died of lung cancer yet. Now, I'm not so sure a 12-year-old would be arguing that, but fair enough. Uh, So he's smoking, he's drinking, and he does coke. 
Yes. And he, he drink dry. <laughs> <laughs> he drink dry. No wonder he he's flying. I know. Fact number four. Here we go. The biggest one. Santa is a harbinger of disease. No notifications of disease outbreaks have been associated yet with kissing Santa. However, there have been numerous foodborne viral and salmonella outbreaks associated with Christmas parties. As of yet, Santa has not been a suspect in these cases. Santa gets coughed or sneezed on up to 10 times a day, having children sitting on his lap, according to Grills and Halliday. If he were to contract H1N1 influenza on one such occasion and then deliver it around the world, the consequences would be devastating. Contract tracing would be near impossible. In Australia, there are as of yet no health checks on Santas, so no tests for resistant strains of Staphylococcus aureus and other such bacteria are done, and no alcohol swabs are offered to Santas who get repeatedly kissed at children's parties. Santa as well does not travel via designated airports, ports and ground crossings and so contravenes international health regulations and quarantines. Who knows what's in his beard after all those kids often <laughs> seized over there. <laughs> but would. I wonder, should they be exchanging their woolen gloves for rubber gloves? Or a little hand sanitizer. Grills and Halliday have concluded that Santa needs to affect population health by only 0.1% to endanger millions of lives, and a radical change to his image is required. Based on his history of, of being obese, being a drink driver, being an advertiser of unhealthy products, and a potential carrier of disease. There you go. A tongue-in-cheek look at the problems with Santa's health. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on www.diffusionradio.com. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program this time were John August and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Patrick Ruby. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next time on Diffusion Science Radio.